What a contrast we see in this lesson versus the last lesson. Last time uh, we studied chapters 17 and 18, and it was more or less judgment over Babylon. We saw religious Babylon judged in the middle of the tribulation period in chapter 17, and we saw economic and political Babylon judged by God himself at the end of the tribulation period. And these were more or less discouraging chapters. They were encouraging because God's in control, he's sovereign, his purposes will be accomplished. But we saw the wickedness of man, we saw the wickedness of the Antichrist. And it was so much discouragement in those two chapters because we see how man is desperately wicked. And the merchants were bemoaning the fact that their, their economy was falling apart, not turning to the living God. But what a change we have in chapters 19 and 20 as we study them together today. These are two wonderful chapters, and we will use every bit of our hour going through these two chapters together. So let's get started. Revelation chapters 19 and 20 is all about the king and his kingdom. And there are five key events in these two chapters that will take place as God wraps up human history. That is so hard for us to grasp that because all we know is history. We were born, we live, we die. We hear about people that lived 100 years ago, 500 years ago, 2,000 years ago. And yet there's going to come a day when God wraps all this up and he's going to then usher in the new heaven and the new earth. And so that's what these two chapters are about. Five key events as he wraps up human history and ushers in the new heaven and the new earth. Well, here they are, if you're taking notes. First of all, in chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, heaven will rejoice. In chapter 19, verse 11, through chapter 20, verse 3, Christ will return. In chapter 20, verses 4 through 6, saints will reign. In verses 7 through 10, Satan will revolt. And in verses 11 through 15, sinners are recompensed. That's where we're going in this hour that we have together. Well, let's start. Let's look at Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, and it's heaven will rejoice, verse 1. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again, they said, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, 
Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your, and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Wow, those are 10 power-packed verses. Well, first of all, why are they rejoicing so much? Why all the why all the rejoicing and glory and hallelujah and all that? Well, look at the command in chapter 18 verse 20. When God was judging political and economic Babylon, verse 20 in chapter 18 says, "Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her." So this is a response to the command in chapter 18, verse 20, to rejoice because God is just and he has judged. Now, as we said last week, we're not, we're not rejoicing over many, many lost people who will lose their lives and be eternally separated from God. But we are rejoicing that God is just, he is righteous, he's judged his enemies, and he is the true and holy God. That's why we're rejoicing. Well, I know that you caught the fact that I read four times, Alleluia. Alleluia is the Greek form of the Hebrew word, Hallelujah, and it simply means praise the Lord. This is the only chapter in the Bible where this word, Hallelujah is found. We see it many times in the Psalms, the Hebrew word, Hallelujah, and it simply means praise the Lord. So heaven is rejoicing praising God for what he has done and for who he is. And in these first 10 verses, we see that there are three reasons for this hallelujah chorus from heaven. He says, after these things, so after God finishes judging Babylon, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude and they're saying, hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. In verse two, because true and righteous are his judgments. He's judged the great harlot. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. And they said, alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever. It's an eternal judgment. And so the 24 elders in verse 4 and the four living creatures, we've seen them before, we've talked about them before, fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne and they're saying, amen, so be it, we're with you, hallelujah. And then a voice comes from heaven, verse 5, which introduces the second reason for this hallelujah chorus. The first is God has judged his enemies in verses 1 through 4. Now God is reigning, verses 5 and 6. Because in verse 5 it says, Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you servants, those who fear him, both small and great. And as I've, I heard the voice of a great multitude, sound of many waters, mighty thundering. So it's an authoritative voice. It's reams of power and authority saying, Alleluia, praise the Lord, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Now, that doesn't mean that he hasn't reigned before. It simply means he had let Satan have dominion over the earth, but now he has begun to reign again on earth because he has now judged Babylon and judged the Antichrist. And we'll see that in these, these two chapters. 
So the Lord God omnipotent, you know what the word omnipotent means. It means all powerful. So this great voice of a great multitude says God is reigning. He has the, the Greek word really means he has begun to reign. And that doesn't bother me a bit because you know that when Satan fell, God has given him, he's been on a leash by God. We know that from the book of Job. Satan can't do everything he wants to do, but he has pretty much full reign over the earth. And so all of heaven is now rejoicing that God is starting to judge and starting to take over. Well, the third reason for this hallelujah chorus is the bride is ready. The bride is ready, verses 7 through 10. Now look at these carefully. Let's be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. Now there's a couple of things I want to focus on. First of all, we know that the bride is the church. Now, some Bible scholars, one in particular that that my mother used to read a lot about, said that the church can't be the bride of Christ because the new heaven and the new earth, it says in the, the end of the book, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth coming out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. Well, the bride could be the church and the city could be the bride as well. Jesus is the door. Jesus is the good shepherd. Jesus is the vine. Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is living water. We can have multiple brides if we want. The picture is the same. Look at Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. When we have this very interesting and very um, uh, very disputed passage in Ephesians 5, in verse 22 it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. So the picture here is the marriage relationship, husband and wife, is just like the relationship between Jesus and the church. In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, we've referenced this a week or two ago, Paul says, For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. The picture there is Paul wanted to present all of his uh, converts to Jesus as a bride ready for her husband. And we see from John chapter 3, verse 29, that Jesus is the bridegroom. He says, verse 29 of John 3, He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. So Jesus is really the bridegroom. Isn't it interesting that usually when you go to a wedding, it's all about the bride. Everything is about the bride. But in this wedding, it's all about the bridegroom. The focus is on him. But we also have a question. What was the bride wearing? The bride was wearing the righteous acts of the saints. Now, I want you to go back to Ephesians chapter 5. We were just there a moment ago, and I read through verse 26. But verse 27 is very important as well. 
because it says here that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So we believe that when this is going to occur is at the judgment seat of Christ. When we go before Christ, we, our acts, everything that we've done in the body will be judged by Jesus, perhaps by his fiery eyes of judgment that we've talked about a number of times. And so when we appear before him, all of what we have done that stands for eternity will be counted as righteousness, will be counted as gold and precious gems and silver. But everything that we've done in the body that was not for eternity, that was not pleasing to God, will be burnt away like hay, wood, and stubble. And so when that happens, that will be what is going on in Ephesians 5.27, that the bride will be presented, and during the judgment seat of Christ, all the wrinkles will be taken out, all the flaws will be taken out, and so the bride will be then presented as acceptable to the glorious bridegroom. Because it says in verse 7 of Revelation 19, his wife has made herself ready. So we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ by imputation, but we are our wedding garment. Ryrie says that we're all making our own wedding garment, and some people are going to be just next to naked when they stand before Jesus. But we're making our own wedding garment. So the question is, what will your wedding garment be like? Because it says it would to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And so it's very important that we know that it's what we do in the body. And it's and let me point out, we don't do good works to be saved. We do them because we are saved, because we want Jesus to be working in us and through us. We then do these righteous acts, which helps to make our wedding garment, and it makes us more like Jesus, and it makes us a fit bride. Now, we can't go past this without talking about the culture of the day in weddings in, in, in the nation of Israel. There's three stages. There's the engagement, there's the groom claiming his bride, then there's the wedding supper. Now, the engagement was usually when the boy and girl were very young, and they weren't men and women, they were boys and girls. And you know you've probably heard that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was very quite young, maybe as young as 11 or 12 when she was betrothed to Joshua, uh, to, to Joseph. Um, there's an engagement. There's a betrothal. You are set apart for another person. And the wedding would not be consummated. The ceremony would not take place until much, much later. But the only way of breaking that engagement was a letter of divorcement. So you were really married even though there was no ceremony and no consummation. And so when you, when you trusted Jesus to be your Savior, if you have done that, you then were engaged to Jesus. The next step in a Jewish wedding was the groom. When it came time for the ceremony, the groom would go to the bride's house and claim his bride and take her back to his place. And that's exactly what's going to happen in the rapture of the church. 
that when Jesus splits that eastern sky and we hear the voice of the archangel and the sound of the trumpet, the dead in Christ will rise first. And that is the bridegroom coming to claim his bride. And we who are alive will be caught up to meet him in the air and we will forever be with the Lord. So that is Jesus, the bridegroom, coming back to claim the bride. And then the third phase of the Jewish wedding was the wedding supper. And then we will be supping with Jesus, the bride with the bridegroom. Now, there's a difference of opinion. Many people believe the wedding supper of the Lamb will be the seven years of the tribulation period, and others believe that it will be the entire thousand years of the millennium. But let's make sure we're clear. There will be a wed- the wedding supper of the Lamb. And then he says, verse 9, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb, and he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. And, you know, for, for an aside, John the Baptist uh, will be a guest at the wedding. And Jesus is very clear in that in John 3. John will be a guest. Why? Because he lived and died before the church was born. He's not part of the church. So he won't be part of the bride of Christ, but he will be an honored guest at the wedding supper in this great celebration. So in verses 1 through 10, we see that heaven will rejoice. Alleluia. Praise the Lord. He's righteous. He is reigning. He has judged his enemies. And praise the Lord, his bride is ready. Well, now we get to the next section. And that is that Christ will return. In verse chapter 19, verse 11, through chapter 20, verse 3, we see the conqueror in 19, verses 11 through 16. And then we see his conquests in verses 17 through chapter 20, verse 3. He's going to defeat the armies of the kings of the earth in verses 17 to 19, and then verse 21. And he's going to defeat the false prophet and the beast in verse 20. And then we'll talk about Satan in chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. Well, first of all, though, let's talk about the conqueror. Let's look at Revelation 19, 11 through 16. Well, first of all, I forgot to comment on verse 10. You noticed that John was caught up in the emotion of the moment, didn't you? He fell at the angel's feet to worship him. And the angel is appalled at this. He said, don't do that. I am your fellow servant and your brethren. So he says, I am not worthy to be worshipped. You know, isn't that interesting? Because John's going to do that again. But let's cut John, John some slack here. He is seeing some unbelievable things. And he is caught up in the emotion of praising the Lord. Hallelujah. God's going to reign. He is ruling and reigning and he is defeating and he's judging. And John's caught up and he starts to worship the angel. Now he's going to do it again a little bit later. And we know, remember when Paul and uh, I believe it was Barnabas were somewhere and they were preaching and they did a miracle and the people started saying, these are God's. And they started to worship them as gods. Zeus and Hermes and Paul and Barnabas were absolutely flabbergasted and said, don't you dare worship us. We are men. But you know, there was a time when Jesus was on earth. And when somebody bowed to worship him, he accepted that worship. Why? 
because Jesus is worthy of worship. We don't worship men. We don't worship angels. We worship Jesus because he is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We're going to see him as the conqueror, as the true and the faithful, the one with the new name. He is worthy of worship. So it's very clear here. John was not to worship the angel. Only God is worthy of worship. Verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he has a name on his robe and on his thigh, a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Boy, I tell you what, we could make three sermons out of this passage alone, couldn't we? Here's the conqueror. Heaven is open, and Jesus comes forth on a white horse. We saw the white horse of the 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 rider and the white horse in chapter 6 and then that was because it was the false christ it was the antichrist and so we see here that Jesus the true christ is coming on a white horse so we know there's got to be animals in heaven because at least because there's white horses in heaven because the people the armies in heaven and i have to believe it includes us we will come with him to the battle of armageddon we won't have to fight but we'll be with him and we will be on white horses. Can you imagine coming out of heaven on a white horse? That is amazing to me. And so the conqueror is coming. Now make, make, make sure that you're clear on this. The first time he came back, the first phase of his second coming, he came in the air, the rapture. This time he's coming to the earth. Zechariah chapter 14 says that he's going to hit Mount, the Mount of Olives and it's going to split in two. So this is when Jesus comes to the earth, the second coming at the end of the tribulation period. His first phase was the rapture in the air. So he who sat on him was called faithful and true. Notice his names here. Faithful and true. The previous one we saw on the white horse in chapter 6 wasn't faithful. He made a covenant with Israel, then broke it after three and a half years. He wasn't true. He was false because all of his miracles were false. They were imitations. They were deceptions. So this is a contrast between the Antichrist and Jesus. Jesus is faithful and true. He has a new name that nobody knows. We're not even going to conjecture because it's a name only he knows. Only he and God know. But the other names are, he is the word of God. His name is called the word of God, verse 13. This John is the only writer in scripture that uses this. He says it in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And now in this passage, he says, that Jesus' name is the Word of God. Well, how do we usually express ourselves? We express ourselves through words. 
So this is the way that God expressed himself to us is in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, I know that primarily Jesus came to die, but a very significant reason why Jesus came to earth is to show us who God is. We wouldn't know who God is if it weren't for the revelation of Jesus Christ. We know that we know about God from creation, it says in Romans 1, but we wouldn't know that he loved us or cared for us unless he gave us special revelation. Jesus is a special revelation from God in which we know who God is and how God is because we have seen Jesus. He is the word. He is the expression. Hebrews 1, he is the express image. He is fully and completely God. Colossians chapter 1. So he is the word, the expression of God. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. So he is the word of God. He is also the King of kings and Lord of lords. We knew he was God. We knew that he uh, died on the cross for us to pay our penalty for sin. We knew he was buried on the third day rose again. He came the first time for salvation, came the first time in humility to preach good tidings to the poor. Now he's coming in judgment and he's coming as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now I love a phrase in verse 11. It says, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. This is not a temper tantrum. This is not him just getting back at people he doesn't like. This is him judging and making war in righteousness. Notice how else he comes. His eyes are as a flame of fire. His judgment penetrates everything. So he will judge with his fiery eyes. He has many crowns, diadems, kingly crowns, ruler's crowns, not Stephanos, victor's crowns, although he is the victor. This is a kingly ruler crown, and he has many of them, maybe one for every one of his attributes. I don't know how many there are crowns, but there are many of them. He has a robe dipped in blood. Years ago, I thought it was his own blood. Now, I don't believe it's his own blood. I believe that this is the blood of his enemies, because when he comes, he's treading the wine press, which means judgment. Remember, we talked about this before in a previous chapter when the earth was reaped, that treading the wine press, all the wine, all the, the grapes, the fat, luscious grapes were put in the wine press and the, the treaders were then put into the vat and they would walk over the grapes and in an especially juicy grape year, especially bountiful harvest, there would be another vat where the, the juice would run off into another vat and as they would stomp on these grapes, the juice would, would splatter up and on their garments. This is a picture of what Jesus is doing. His judgment is treading the wine press. And the blood of his enemies is already on the robe, which tells me it's a done deal. He doesn't have to get blood dipped in, splattered on his robe. This is symbolic that the, the task is already done. The battle is already won. His robe is dipped in his enemy's blood because he is the victor and he is treading the wine press. 
Did you notice the sharp sword coming out of his mouth? It says, out of his mouth, verse 15, a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. And you, you and I both know what that is. That is simply the word of God. He is the word. He is the living word. And he is has out of his mouth the truth, the word of God. And so that sword, it could be a literal sword, but in any event, what is he going to conquer his victors with? They will be conquered with the truth. Maybe because God spoke the worlds into creation, maybe all Jesus comes and says, proclaims truth. I'm here. I'm King of Kings. I'm Lord of Lords. I'm judging. And he wins the battle. It's as simple as that. He has a sharp sword, the truth of God coming out of his mouth, and when he sets up his kingdom, he's going to rule with a rod of iron. And he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And that wrath is just God's settled conviction that sin must be judged. Many people who are called universalists believe that at the end of time, God is going to say, I'm a loving and merciful God. Everybody come on into heaven. Folks, scripture doesn't teach that. Scripture teaches that many, many, many will go into the lake of fire for eternity because God has a settled conviction that sin must be punished. And he comes, Jesus comes, treading the wine press, executing judgment in the fierceness and wrath on Almighty God and on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So he's faithful and true. He is fulfilling prophecy, Zechariah 14, Psalm 2, which is a messianic psalm. All of this being fulfilled with Jesus coming on a white horse. That's the picture of the conqueror. Well, let's take a look at the at the conquered, the conquered. Let, let's take a look at these next verses. The conquered, uh, first of all, the kings of the earth. Okay, look at verses 17 through 19. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God, and that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then verse 21. And then, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. This is one of three great victories. He's going to, three great victories. He's going to defeat the armies of the kings of the earth. He's going to defeat the beast and the false prophet. And we'll read that in verse 20 in a second or two. And Satan will be defeated in verses one through three. So really, it's very interesting here. Now, did you notice here? Now, you know, we call this the battle of Armageddon. It's not much of a battle, is it? It's really a supper, not a battle. And the emphasis here is on the flesh. You know, it, there's. I don't know about you, but I got a war going on in my in my heart and mind every single day. It's a it's a war between my flesh and my spirit. 
And and God wrote when he was ready to judge the earth in Genesis chapter 3, my spirit will not always strive with man for he's flesh. 1 Peter 1.24 says all flesh is grass. Okay, Here today, gone tomorrow. And so we've got a battle with the flesh and there seems to be an emphasis on the flesh in these verses. It's not a battle, it's a supper. Did you notice in the first part of chapter 19, we had the marriage supper of the lamb. Now in the last part of chapter chapter 19, we've got a supper of God and he invites all the birds to eat all the flesh. And that word bird there really means vulture. So all of these flesh-eating birds are invited because there's going to be a lot of food for them. So in verses 17 through 19 and verse 21, the beast and his armies are defeated. Now, this is the battle of Armageddon. All of the armies of the earth are going to gather against Jerusalem. Some believe that some of these armies will be marching toward the Antichrist because it says here that, remember one of the judgments was the river Euphrates was dried up so that the kings of the east could get there. Well, and then in Daniel, it says here that news from the north and the east trouble the Antichrist. So maybe all of the armies of the earth are gathering there to fight against Jerusalem, which many believe. Some believe some armies are revolting against Antichrist. But really, the bottom line here is God is getting all of the armies of the earth, all of the people against him, He is bringing them all around Israel in Jerusalem so that he will win this battle and provide this supper for all the birds of the air. Look at verse 20. Satan's henchmen, the leaders of the revolt, are captured and confined. Look at verse 20. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. So they, Satan's men, the leaders of the revolt, the Antichrist and the false prophet, in this battle are both captured and confined. They're thrown into the lake of fire alive. I remember when we had we had an evangelist, um, Bailey Smith, who came in the late 1980s to Calvary Baptist Church, and he was just a wonderful evangelist. And he said, do you know what those words fire and brimstone mean in the original language? And his answer was, they mean fire and brimstone. There really is a lake of fire. It's going to be burning day and night, forever and ever and ever and ever, and anyone thrown in there is eternally separated from God and eternally tormented. And these two are the first into the lake of fire. So Christ is going to return. He is the conqueror. He is taking care of his enemies. He wins three great victories. We've already talked about the first two. He's going to defeat the armies of the kings of the earth. He's going to defeat the beast and the false prophet. And now Satan will be defeated. Look at chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan, 
and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. So first, Satan was cast out of heaven. Remember, we saw that in chapter 12. There's war in heaven. Now he's cast out of the earth. Now he's not in the lake of fire. He is in the bottomless pit. Aren't you encouraged by chapter uh, by chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, an angel is strong enough just to grab Satan by the nap of the neck and throw him into the bottomless pit. It's not a problem for him. When he's God's messenger doing God's uh, will for God's purposes, Satan is not a match for the angel who has God's authority. So when angel comes down from heaven, he's got the key, he's got a great chain, he gets a hold of the dragon, Satan, and bound, binds him for a thousand years into the bottomless pit so that he can't deceive anybody anymore. Now, it's very interesting to see all those names for Satan there. He laid hold of the dragon. Dragon, he's cruel. That serpent of old, he is a conniver. He is a deceiver who is the devil and Satan devil. He's the accuser. He is our adversary. So we see all of the facets here of Satan. He's a liar. He's a murderer. He's a thief. He's cruel. He's cunning. He's deceptive. He's our opponent. But now he's in the bottomless pit and he cannot bother anybody for a thousand years. And so that's where he is. And so Christ will return He'll win over the kings of the earth. He'll win over the beast and the false prophet. And now he wins over Satan. Satan will be defeated. So now Satan is in the bottomless pit. So the enemies are taken care of. Jesus is free. And now the timetable says it's time to establish the kingdom. Time to establish the kingdom. So we see in chapter 20, verses 4 through 6, saints will reign. Look at verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished, this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now, there are so many people who have such a hard time with these verses and the millennium. Uh, there are some people who are post-millennialists who believe that we'll have a thousand years of peace where Jesus is reigning in our hearts and he'll come at the end of that time. Um, I really cannot see that and there's not, I don't believe a whole lot of people who believe that anymore. There's our people that are, col that are called amillennialists and they just don't believe in the millennium at all. They just believe that there will, there's, they spiritualize everything and they don't believe that there will be a thousand year reign of Christ. And there are those of us, and I fall into this camp, 
pre-millennialists that Jesus will come, he will defeat his enemies, and he will literally reign on this earth for 1,000 years. The phrase thousand years is used six times in verses one through seven in chapter 20. It's, we get our, our, the word millennium from the two Latin words, milli and annum. And it starts with a literal resurrection. And so therefore, I believe it is a literal kingdom, Jesus literally reigning on planet earth. And there are a couple of reasons why. There's a couple of purposes for the kingdom. First of all, the first purpose is to fulfill God's promises to Israel and to Christ. Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm and it promises that Jesus will reign. Luke chapter 1 verses 30 and 30 to 33 and I will read those verses for you is another reason why I believe that this this kingdom will be literal. Luke chapter 1 verses 30 to 33 says this. Luke 1 verse 30. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. So there's a promise before Jesus even came as a baby that he would rule and reign. And David was promised that one of his descendants would reign on his throne and rule from Jerusalem. And so Jesus will fulfill that and will rule forever. Another reason for the the purpose of the kingdom is it's going to be a worldwide display of Christ's glory. Men have always screwed it up and have never reigned the way God would have. And Jesus is just going to display to everybody how the world would be conducted, how life would be under the rule of God. God has always wanted to rule. Man has always messed it up and wanted to be like everybody else. And so Jesus is going to prove here's the way it would be with God ruling. And Jesus is going to rule. Nature is going to be set free from the bondage of sin. This fulfills scripture. It says in Isaiah, the wolf will lie down with the lamb. So nature is going to be set free. You know, a lot of times we talk about the balance of nature. And I watched the Discovery Channel and see a lion bearing down on a zebra. And I thought, well, isn't that great? The balance of nature. One animal eats the other and then another animal eats another animal. That's not the way God set it up. God set it up in Genesis 1 and 2 to where animals didn't eat each other. They ate the same things that Adam and Eve were to eat, fruits and vegetables and seeds. But because of sin, animals have eaten each other. Now, with Jesus reigning, nature will be set free from the bondage of sin. And God is going to finally demonstrate uh, how nature would be, how the world should be, if Jesus reigns. And lastly, it's going to be an answer to prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. So when Jesus rules and reigns, it's going to be an answer to a prayer that I'm sure many of you prayed hundreds of times, thy kingdom come. We want Jesus to reign. We don't want to be reigned by man. We want Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, 
faithful and true, the one true God, the Alpha and Omega, the author and finisher of our faith, we want him to reign. And so I believe it will be a literal reign on earth from Jesus. And we will reign with him. Because it says, I saw thrones and they sat on them. So saints will reign. Judgment was coming to them. It's going to be people who are resurrected. People who have been beheaded are martyred for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God. Those people in the tribulation that had not worshipped the beast or his image. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead didn't live again until the thousand years were finished. And so they say, blessed and holy, who he who has part in the first resurrection. And I'll explain that first resurrection in a minute. In the millennium, it'll be a thousand years. And so I believe that there will be both glorified people. It's the church, perhaps Old Testament saints. And I believe Old Testament saints will be part of this. And also people who were martyred, who were believers during the tribulation period. So the millennium, this thousand-year reign of Christ, will begin with people who are still alive and had not died, but they are all believers, and people who are what we would call saved, who have now been resurrected, and they have glorified bodies. They will be participants in the millennial period. But the only people who have lived and are living and have not died will only be believers. No unbelievers will be taking part in the millennium. But it's a thousand years, and Isaiah 65, verses 17 through 25, suggests that if you have a baby, and if that baby dies at age 100, that will be like a child. And so people will live long lives in the millennial period. Well, saints will reign. And let's talk a little bit about resurrection. The phrase general resurrection is never found in the Bible. The Bible teaches two resurrections. And the first is of the saved and leads to blessing. And this is pointed out in Revelation uh, chapter, chapter 20. And it says here in verse 5, This is the first resurrection, and blessed and holy is he who hath part in the first resurrection. Now, it, the first resurrection is comes in stages. Jesus was first. Remember that? Jesus rose from the dead. When he was on the cross and died, uh, many believers were came out of their graves and walked around, which is indicative of Jesus was raised. We too will be raised. 1 Corinthians 15, we will be raised to newness of life. And so because Jesus was raised, believers will be raised. In John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, it says here, do not marvel, this is Jesus speaking, do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Now, isn't it interesting that in that verse, in the middle of that verse, is a span of a thousand years? Because this first resurrection is, it was Jesus then the people in Matthew, that the graves were opened up and they walked around. Then the next phase of the first resurrection is the rapture of the church. And then people who are saved and martyred in the tribulation period, they are raised also. So that's all included in the first resurrection. The first resurrection is of the saved, and that leads to blessing. Then there is a second resurrection, and that leads to judgment. 
The second resurrection is all of the lost people, and that leads to judgment. I want to point you to another verse that also points this out. It's Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. Daniel says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. So in the middle of that verse, some to everlasting life, first resurrection, some to shame and everlasting contempt, second resurrection, and those two are a thousand years apart. Because at the, the first resurrection ends really at the end of the tribulation period before Jesus institutes the millennium, all believers are then raised. And we judge and we reign with Jesus for a thousand years while the unsaved dead are still in torment, but they're not raised yet. So the two resurrections are separated by a thousand years. I know that's a lot to take in, but now here we are. It's the millennium and Jesus is ruling and reigning. There's a thousand years of peace. The wolf will lie down with the lamb. Righteousness and peace will rule. But then in verses 7 through 10, Satan will revolt. Satan is going to revolt. And the question is, he's released from the pit and allowed to lead one last revolt against God? Why would that be? Well, we're going to answer that question. Look at verse 7 of chapter 20. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is a very sobering passage. Satan is going to revolt and he is allowed to lead one last revolt against God. And really the millennial kingdom sums up all that God has said about the human heart during periods of history. It's going to be a reign of law but law will not change the human heart. Here's what's going to happen. In this thousand years of peace, the believers, the people who begin the millennial reign, who are still in their human bodies, who have never died, they will have children. And so those people for a thousand years will have children and they will have children and they will have children. They never had a chance to choose for Jesus. He is ruling with a rod of iron. And so many people will obey outwardly because Jesus is ruling and reigning. Peace and righteousness. Jesus is king of kings, rules with a rod of iron. Inwardly, they will be rebel rebelling. Satan revolting proves that the human heart is desperately wicked and can only be changed by God's grace. Jesus is reigning. His law goes, but law can't change the heart. Just like the law in the Bible can't change our heart. The law only tells us we need a Savior. 
And so these people who are under God's law and outwardly obey God's law, it doesn't change their heart and inwardly they want to rebel. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? And so Satan is allowed one last revolt because these people need to be tested and they need to make a decision about Jesus. And unfortunately, he's going to go out into the four corners of the earth to gather together people who are going to join his side and rebel against Jesus. They don't want to be ruled by Jesus. They don't want to be ruled by God. And Satan deceives them. Now, don't confuse verse 8 with Ezekiel 38 and 39 because it mentions Gog and Magog. But see, in, in Ezekiel 38 and 39, that's a different battle. That's a battle that happens when Gog and Magog, a nation from the north, comes and attacks Jerusalem. This is Gog and Magog from the four corners of the earth. And Gog and Magog, for the most part, probably uh, alludes to the enemies of God. So they were enemies of God in the battle in the first part of the tribulation, and now Satan is congregating the enemies of God from the four corners of the earth. And did you notice their number is as the sand of the sea? We've got people who have lived for centuries under the law of Jesus, and there are multitudes who are now going to rebel against him because their hearts were never changed. Outwardly they obeyed, inwardly they rebelled. But there's not even a battle this time. Satan is going to surround the camp of the saints and the beloved city, which has to be Jerusalem. And God just says, boom, that's it. Fire comes down from heaven and devours them. And thankfully, Satan, in verse 10, is cast into the lake of fire. Now notice this. Don't miss this. Where the beast and the false prophet are. Doesn't say where they were where they burned up. When you die and when you are judged, it is not annihilation. You don't go through 10 years, 20 years, 1,000 years, 5,000 years of torment. It is eternal judgment. Jesus speaks a lot about hell. As a matter of fact, he speaks more about hell in scripture than about heaven. And I'm trying to anticipate questions from people And so I wanted to anticipate your question about what about people now? Well, there's a place, Jesus is very clear in Luke chapter 16, that there is a place called Sheol, that the believing dead go into Abraham's bosom in the Old Testament, and the unbelieving dead go into Hades. And so when Jesus died and was risen again, many people believe that he emptied paradise and took everybody to heaven. And I have no problem with that because Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. Maybe he left everybody in Abraham's bosom. Maybe he took them to heaven. But all believers of all ages are in paradise. But all unbelievers of all ages are in torment right now. It's just not their final judgment. And we'll see their final judgment in just a moment. So they are being tormented now, being reserved for judgment where they get their final sentence. So Satan will revolt. He deceives the nations. People like the sand of the sea oppose God. They're consumed by fire. Satan's cast into the lake of fire where the beast of the false prophet are. 
And now the last, the last of the chapter, chapter 20, is sinners are recompensed. Let's look at verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works, by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Unfortunately, this is all the unbelieving dead. This is the great white throne judgment, and it is only for believers. This is the second resurrection. Remember, the first resurrection was in, was in stages, and it was all what we would call believers. This is now the great white throne judgment, and it is only for unbelievers. I saw a great white throne. Heaven and earth flee. It just means this is awesome. There's no place to hide. And some take this verse to mean that this will not be done on earth. It will be in space somewhere, in, the, in space, because the heavens and the earth flee. But it's bottom line, there's no place to hide. And him who sat on the throne, unbelievable. It's got to be Jesus because Jesus is the judge. Why is he the judge? Because he came as a man. He is able to judge because he was one of us. He is worthy and qualified to judge. I'll give you some scripture references. Matthew 28, John 5, 22 through 30, and Acts 17.31. That's Matthew 19.28, John 5.22-30, and Acts 17.31. And so we see that Jesus is the judge. What's the basis for judgment? Now we know that all of these people are unbelievers. The dead, small and great, standing before God. But books are being opened. So the basis of their judgment is the books. Now the first one has got to be the word of God. Because it says in John 12, 48, He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. So unbelievers will be judged against the word of God. There's also the book of life. And it's going to be clear that God's going to say, okay, I'm going to judge you by the word of God. Let's see if your name is in the book of life. None of these people in this judgment will have their name in the book of life. So God will say, you will be judged by your works. You and I who are believers know that there is no way that our works will cause us to inherit eternal life. Because our works... Our righteousness is as filthy rags. Why will, be, will we be judged on our works? Because there are degrees of punishment. Everybody will say he's right. Matthew eleven twenty through 24, Jesus said, Tyre and Sidon, Chorazin, 
if, if Sodom and Gomorrah would have seen what you've seen, they would have repented. So it will be more tolerable for them in the day of judgment than for you. So really, the, the book of works is going to say, okay, how much light did you have? What did you do with what you had? And so those cities who saw Jesus will be more accountable than Sodom and Gomorrah who did not see Jesus and did not see his miracles. So I happen to believe, and I think I'm on pretty solid ground here, that people in the United States of America who have 10 Bibles, one of every translation, who have sat in churches all of their life, who have heard about Jesus, that he is God, that he is sovereign, that he is the Savior, and rejected him, it will be more tolerable for that person in Africa or Indonesia or Russia or anywhere that hasn't heard about Jesus. Everybody knows about God from from creation. That's Romans 1. But Romans 1 teaches us if you walk in that light, you will get more light. If you reject that light, you get no more light. So God, who judges righteously, knows just how to judge. So these books of works will determine that your works are not sufficient and there's a degrees of punishment and that will cause God to then sentence that person to the lake of fire and the degree of punishment. There will be a judge, but no jury. There will be a prosecutor, but no defense. And there will be a sentence, but there will be no appeal. This will be a very, very sobering scene. The great white throne, all unbelievers, and the books are open and the sentence is pronounced. The picture that we get in verse 13, the sea gave up their dead, Death and Hades delivered up the dead. So death means the body. Hades means the soul, which is what I said before, that all the unbelieving dead, are their souls are in Hades ready for the judgment day. And God's going to empty death and Hades, deliver up the dead. They're judged according to their works. And then aren't you glad about verse 14? Death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. There will be no more death, no more separation. God is dealing with death and Hades. This is the second death. They are Death and Hades is judged along with the beast and the false prophet and Satan. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That is a sobering verse. Revelation 20, 15, anyone not found written in the book of life, was cast into the lake of fire. Let me go through a couple of applications for you, and then I want to close with an example. First of all, the applications. God is sovereign, he is just, and he reigns. You can count on it, you can bank on it. He is coming back. Uh, Peter writes, some people say that, well, God hadn't come back yet, so he's not coming. But Peter writes, God is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. So he's not delaying because he's slow or things are out of control or he doesn't want to come back. He's long-suffering. God is sovereign, just, and he reigns, and Jesus is coming back and he will defeat all his enemies. Satan is a defeated foe. We will reign, and Jesus will judge 
and judge righteously. Those are applications. Those are truths we can hang our hat on and rejoice over. Not over the defeated ones, but we can rejoice over the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But here's the most important truth. You can escape the awfulness of the great white throne judgment by trusting Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Jesus said in John 5, 24, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. That's the most important truth. If you're not sure of your eternal destination, you can escape the great white throne judgment. You can rule and reign with Jesus by trusting him as your personal savior. He died for you. His payment for sin paid your debt. All you have to do is trust him, believe in him. Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so these are very uplifting, yet challenging and sobering chapters. But I want to make sure that you know that you can escape the awfulness of this judgment. Now, I've tried to anticipate questions, and, and I've answered them through there, but I, I want anybody listening to this by CD... Uh, or over the internet, feel free to, to, to email me with a question or a comment or a, a challenge or how I can pray for you. My, my email address is Jerry Morrison. That's J-E-R-R-Y-M-O-R-R-I-S-O-N at triad, T-R-I-A-D dot R-R dot com. That's Jerry Morrison at triad dot R-R dot com. I would love to hear from you and how uh, that these, this study has, has challenged you and encouraged you. And I'd like to hear that you've come to know Jesus through, through uh, one of these lessons. But let me end this lesson with an example. This is, I remember this like it happened yesterday, but my son, who is 36 years old now, when he was in college, he was in college and he worked with some of our youth camps, and one night they had camp night. And this was years ago. This was when he was about 20 or 21. So it was a good 15 years ago. And I remember it like it was yesterday. Now I'm building this on Revelation 20:15. Anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Scott and his very best friend Brantley did a skit on camp night. And the skit was there were two lifelong friends. It showed them in the first scene as babies, one or two years old, playing together with blocks and toys and trucks. And they're playing together. And then it shows them in their next scene in kindergarten. And then as they start school, and then they're in junior high school. And along the way, Scott came to know Jesus personally. He became a believer, but Brantley did not. And Scott, although he invited Brantley to church, never explained anything about the truth of the gospel to his best friend. He just simply said, why don't you come to church with me? And Brantley would simply say, you know I don't do that. I don't go to church. You go on ahead and go. 
So Scott is a believer in Jesus and never explains the truth of the gospel or explains about who Jesus is and what Jesus can do, that he is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So these two go through college, they get married, they have children, and the relationship remains that one is a believer and one is not, and the believer doesn't share his faith, his faith with the unbeliever. And as God would have it, both of them die together. And the last scene is a chilling scene. We have seen them from children to young playmates to schoolmates to best friends in high school to friends who go on trips together and have relationships and then their families are intertwined with wives and children. But one never shares the truth of the gospel and one day they meet death together. And the last scene, they walk out onto the stage and say, isn't this beautiful? What happened to us? Where are we? And it's apparent that they're in some sort of paradise. And just when you think that perhaps both of them are believers in Jesus, there seems to be a black cloud coming and grasps Brantley. It's two angelic beings coming and drag him by both arms. And you can tell that they're going to be dragging him to a dark and a menacing and a tormenting place. So as they start to drag him away, he realizes what is happening. And Scott is standing there helpless. And as Brantley is pulled away, he starts screaming, not just saying or commenting. He is screaming, Scott, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you tell me? Scott, why didn't you tell me? And he is dragged off stage with those words echoing in our ears. Scott, why didn't you tell me? Because his best friend is going to be dragged into eternal torment. And he one day will stand at the great white throne and his name not found in the book of life, he'll be cast in the lake of fire. And for years, his best friend never told him about Jesus. I'm thankful in one point to say that that is a fictional story because Scott and Brantley are both believers in Jesus. But it represents a stark truth that there are people in my life and people in your life that you haven't told about Jesus. So my question to you is, first of all, are you a believer in Jesus? Have you trusted him as your savior? Have you counted on these words that most assuredly I say, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Is that true of you? If that's true of you, I rejoice. If it is not, you can accept Jesus by trusting him as your personal savior. But if you have accepted him, 
Is there somebody who at the great white throne, can they point to you and say, why didn't you tell me? That is one of the greatest applications we can ever make. Who is in your life, in the classroom, in the business world, in the neighborhood, in your circle of friends, in your family, that you know is lost without Jesus, and yet you have not told them about him? I want to be as encouraging as I can, but I also want to be as challenging as I can. So praise the Lord. He reigns. The Lord God omnipotent reigns. Jesus will come, judge his enemies, set up his kingdom, and throw Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet into the lake of fire. Thank God for that. Praise his holy name. But there's a judgment coming. And many people are dying every day and they're going out into eternity and their final designation is the lake of fire. So I would challenge you for your personal life and for the life of others that we be salt and light, that we thank God for being the author and finisher of our faith, but that we ask him to empower us every day that we walk with him intimately and that we let others see Jesus through us so that we can take as many people into the millennial kingdom and into heaven as we can to walk and to live and to be with Jesus forever and ever. I will pray that you will live and walk with him and be a shining light for him. Matthew 5:16. Let's pray. Father, these are challenging and uplifting yet sobering chapters. Lord, I pray for each one listening to this, that they would have a knowledge that they are trusting you and you alone for salvation. And Lord, if there's anyone listening that is not a believer in Jesus, I pray that the Holy Spirit would do the work that only he can in convicting of their sin and then drawing them to the Savior. And Lord, I pray that for those believers who are listening, that we will be compelled to be salt and light, that we would be daily filled with the Holy Spirit to show Jesus to everybody we meet, and that you would be glorified as a result. Thank you for these chapters. Thank you that we can know that you are sovereign, you are just, you reign. Jesus is coming. Satan is defeated, and we will reign, and you judge righteously. Thank you for all of that. Encourage our hearts, challenge us as we walk with you daily. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.